Anyone fancy? Anyone fancy moving? But I move. Or I could move. Yeah, because because we're going to be doing a bit more that's uh, we're going to be doing a bit more that's deliberately interactive and get you doing some work around the tables as well. Um, I'm really sorry for the late start. I was seeing old friends out in Curry, and it's what five and a half miles to their house. It took half an hour. So there was, there was a yeah, it was, a, it was a horrible traffic jam, and then someone. I think I got behind. Anyway, um, I should stop moaning right now, shouldn't I? And stop making ridiculous excuses. Right, um, now, we covered quite a lot yet last week, and uh, I was concerned to try to paint the big picture of the Bible so that we could then look at the bits in the context of the whole. And seeing the parts, and, and don't, don't, look too care, don't look too closely at those diagrams yet, okay? Because it'll just make your eyes glaze over and you'll feel or you potentially feel overwhelmed by it so just hold your horses on that one um, so what I thought we would do today is to first of all do a, a brief review of some of what we did last week so just an overview uh, recap and then um, with that biblical big picture in place look at two of the two of the key themes that run the way, right the way through it so we'll, we'll think about creation particularly, creation and new creation. Um, because they're such important themes and have, they have such a profound effect on how we think about what the gospel is and how we actually now live. They really make a difference to how we think about those things. And we'll, we'll unpack that a bit. And then we'll think about what the word redemption means. What is being talked about in the Bible? What is, what is salvation and what does it look like? And what's the extent and the scope of it? What is, how does that biblical big picture help us to frame that rightly? Um, and that's when we get into very practical applications. So it's not just getting stuff that fills our heads, um, but always about, well, how does that change the way that we live? And how does that help us to love God and love people better? So I think I maybe said it last week, but my own passion is that there should never be a division between um, the intellectual and the practical or the academic and then the life of the church they, they, we really need each other if we don't think rightly then sooner or later and probably sooner we're going to start doing wrongly as well and, um, and thinking rightly is a means towards the end of doing rightly and living better so um, with that small rant over um, Let's just do a little recap of what we did last week. We said that the Bible's big picture... Um, I, I mean, lots of different authors have described this in different ways. So some people would, would describe it as acts of a play. There's different acts in a play, or there's, there's different uh, key moments in the biblical story. But this is just the way that, 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 that I do it, and I find it personally helpful just to think in these ways that we have a good creation and that's what we're going to spend a chunk of time on today twisted out of shape not the creation itself twisted out of shape but man rebelling so that everything that man's meant to do in creation to steward it well, to look after it to represent God to his creation to look after all of it on his behalf 
all of that's twisted out of shape because man instead of loving God and loving others is curved in upon himself as Augustine said uh, a long time ago it's a lovely, it's a, not a lovely picture it's a, it's a very good picture of that of what sin is this twisting and this curving in uh, and everything then being slightly out of shape things not being the way that they're supposed to be that uh, I think really useful phrase that just captures so much of what we feel talked a bit about last week about the fall, about sin, something that we're often uncomfortable to talk about in our contemporary churches. I think we should talk about it more. Um, <laughs> it's not just because, um, just not just because I'm being sort of a bit, a bit dark and uh, and intense, but rather because I think it makes a difference. And again, it makes a difference because if we understand the extent of the fall and sin that it affects every one of us. It does several things. One, it gives us an explanatory framework that, that explains why we experience the world the way that we do, why relationships are broken, why things aren't the way that we expect them to be, the way that we want them to be. If we're all infected with the same disease, then it also means that there's nobody who isn't. And therefore, there's nobody who is better in that sense than anybody else, and no one who's worse than anybody else. So rightly understanding sin levels things. It gets rid of pride. And it gets rid of self-righteousness especially. And given that self-righteousness and hypocrisy is one of the things the church is often accused of. One of the, one of the reasons my, my father, till close to the end of his life, would always give for rejecting the church was what he saw as being self-righteousness and hypocrisy. If we understand sin rightly, then we should be the very opposite of that. People who can be honest about that. Because we realise that we're no better, no worse. That's true everybody. The other thing about understanding sin rightly, if we understand that rightly, then we're not going to look within ourselves for an answer to the problem. We have to look outside of ourselves. And that points us towards looking to God, looking for a saviour. And not looking to ourselves to reform ourselves or try harder or do better or clean up our act or whatever. Does that make sense? These are, these are incredibly important things and, and, and actually can be a huge relief for those of tender conscience who think little of themselves to realise that they're no different from anybody else. And uh, I think it's one of the roles of people in any kind of leadership in the church to be honest about sin, appropriately honest about sin, so that those who are leading are demonstrating to others just how much they need Jesus, rather than a wrong model of leadership, which is often, let me show you how little I need Jesus, because I'm so perfect, but tell you how much you need him. Um, I caricature slightly. So, creation and fall, we said last week that... Um, <coughs> The, the, the thing that we have to understand about the fall, about sin, is that God didn't need to do anything, but he did. He graciously did something. He did something because he loves and because he cares. Not because he was obligated to by anything in us. It's kind of tough teaching that. Um, but what he did do, and uh, we, we focused a wee bit on that last week, is that he starts this process of Redemption, 
You see, the cross in the biblical story has been central to that story of how God is. I don't know why my uh, laser pointer is making my computer make a noise. I don't know why. Well, we'll uh, it might not even make a difference there. Hold on. No, it's not. Sorry. <laughs> Use that sound anytime I give a wrong answer or anytime anyone else gives a wrong answer. Um, so I'll just point with my, with my hand in, that's probably easier. So God is doing something to restore things. And we said as well last week that the story is going somewhere. A story not, not something that's not true, but a story that has a start and a, a narrative and a plot that goes somewhere as a destination. And it's restored good creation, things put back, made the way they're supposed to be. Um, and Jesus' work on the cross being central to that process of restoration. So that's just that big picture. Now, on one of your handouts, you've got that you've got that slide, but with some of the some of the events along the way that are sketched in. So you've got that now. And uh, we're not going to spend too long on that because we're going to go to the next diagram, which is going to fuss your head a wee bit. Um, I apologise for it, but it's just it's there's kind of more of a reference. The next one. So if you get the next one, that's where we're going to go next. That's just to show that this, the whole biblical storyline, the 66 books of the Bible, um, we can kind of slot them into this in different places, and we can see. Where the different events occur in relation to the story of redemption, of renewal and restoration that God's carrying out in His world. Now, all right, you ready for this? Then? I'm not going to spend too long on this. Just this is more just to give you a something you can kind of. If you don't find it useful, fine, shred it. If you do find it useful, it's there just to give you a bit of a. Um, a roadmap, if you like, for where some of the Bible fits in, where some of the events in the Bible fit into that big story. Okay? Okay, so far. Remember, interrupt, ask questions, disagree, whatever you like, along the way. We said last week that the way that God starts this process of redemption is to enter into, is to actually choose one particular man. And choose him not because he's great, or anything like that, but choose this man and choose him, <coughs> his family and his descendants, enter into a relationship with them, and a relationship in which this man gets to know God, gets to know what he's like, and begins to live that out, and he teaches his descendants how to worship God and to live in right relationship with him. And all of that, not just so that they can exclusively be God's people and enjoy having a good time as his people, but all of that so that through them, all of the nations of the earth, all of the peoples of the planet should be blessed. And that's the Abrahamic covenant at the beginning of Genesis 12. So just to begin to look at, this is going to come appear bit by bit, so you might, may or may not want to look at that, you might want to look up at this first creation, fall in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. And I've got a big thick line there just to signify that the catastrophe that is the fall. And then God entering into this covenant relationship 
where he promises Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Of course, the Apostle Paul picks up that same language, for example, in Galatians, and says that these promises to Abraham are being fulfilled because of what Jesus has done, and all the nations of the earth are being blessed. We have the, the story through Genesis being of the descendants of Abraham and all of their trials and tribulations. And bluntly, their multiple failures to live faithfully in the relationship with God. By the way, when you're looking at the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament and you see the word Lord with capital letters, all capital letters, it's an sort of English convention to translate the divine name, the covenant name that God gives to his people. When he tells them, that my, he says, my name is Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh being the, the covenant name that God gives. Um, and uh, probably the, the tradition of translating it as Lord at least goes back to the, the Jewish people who won't even pronounce the name because it's so holy and they dare not even say it. Which is actually contrary to really what the Old Testament presents us with because it's a, it's a name of relationship and of familiarity, yes, reverence, but also familiarity. So we have this covenant people and by the end of the book of Genesis with all the various stories there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's descendants, the whole story of Joseph. And the, the book of Genesis finishes with Joseph in Egypt, reconciled with his brothers and that's how Genesis ends. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, kind of reconciled, but I think you're probably saved. Into the book of Exodus, we fast forward some time, and we have the people of Israel still in Egypt, but this time they're no longer, they're no longer as a people, they are, they are slaves within this land. And the whole book of Exodus deals with how God takes this program of this unfolding history of personal relationship and gets it back on track. How he takes these people from slavery and he brings them out of slavery into freedom. How he defeats all of his enemies. For example, in the, the ten plagues where Yahweh demonstrates his superiority and power over all of the Egyptian gods and demonstrates that he alone is God. Uh, he delivers them out of Egypt. He takes them through the Red Sea. He defeats the enemies behind them. He makes his presence amongst them as they go. He provides for them along the way food and water. He gives them a law to live by. And of course, I said again, just to remind you last, from last week, that that law, the Ten Commandments, but much more than the Ten Commandments, covers every aspect of life describing what good, flourishing human life looks like in relationship with Yahweh. But that law is given after they're redeemed out of slavery. It's not that God says, here's a set of tasks that you must complete in order for me to like you. But rather, Ten Commandments start with, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of Egypt. This is how you're now to live. Because we're in this relationship. And it's very, very crucial we understand that it's that order of things and not the other way around. So, given the law of Exodus 20, 
we move through the painful and rather boring end parts of Exodus. Uh, I think it's, did I say that last week as well? Um, but but it's, it's all about the building of this tabernacle. Um, the people are wandering in the desert, and God gives them detailed instructions how to build this huge tent. And you might read that kind of stuff when you come to Exodus and think, what on earth is this about? Why is it important? It's actually really important. And it's really rather exciting as well. Because what it is, well, the details aren't exciting, but the general idea is, and the general idea is this, Yahweh says to his people, build this structure. Build this structure because I am going to make my presence in it. So that when you're all camped out there, the, 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 the manifest presence of Yahweh is going to be right there in the middle in this tabernacle in this holy of holies within the center of this tabernacle and it's um, it's rather an exciting picture it's God living in the midst of his people and when you get to the end of the book of Exodus they finish building this tabernacle and then the presence, the glory of Yahweh comes to dwell in the midst of it and after Exodus we then flip over to the next book which is Leviticus Leviticus is answering the question how can a bunch of very sinful rebellious people live next door to Yahweh and so what you have in the book of Leviticus is well what about the people's sin what about all their rebellion what about all the ways in which man can approach this glorious presence of Yahweh himself the creator of the universe and Leviticus answers that in this yeah, how many people here have actually read the book of Leviticus? <coughs> just, a, just a few of us. A few of us um, martyrs to the cause you know, have toiled their way through Leviticus. It's, um, it's pretty heavy going at times, isn't it, as a, as a book? But all of it is foreshadowing something else. It's all looking forward. But it's answering the question, how can God dwell in the midst of his people? And the answer is, only if something's done about sin. Only if there's some sort of sacrifice whereby the people's sin is dealt with and taken away so that they can be in that relationship. That's kind of the message of that whole book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the wanderings through the land, Deuteronomy, literally meaning the second law, the restating of this law before they go into the promised land. Then of the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. Never properly done, never completed, only ever partial. Um, and again, lots of failures on the way. It's never, it's never a glorious history, really. We then come into that most bleak of biblical books, the book of Judges. So you have the people established in this promised land. It just cycles of sin, punishment, and then restoration. Sin, punishment, and restoration. That's where you get the stories of Samson, for example, uh, which I find one of the most depressing, as a man, find it one of the most depressing and alarming stories in the whole of the Bible. Um, judges pose no punches. There's some really awful stuff there. Uh, certainly doesn't make it into children's story Bibles. Um, it's it's awful, but it's a mark of the realism of the Bible. It doesn't pull any punches. It says this is the way it is. 
it's real and sin is terrible it spoils everything and that's the message of judges we move on into first and second Samuel beginning of Samuel where the last of the judges really is Samuel but then the people want a king so they can be like the nations reversing that order that God has already given them when he says you are to be in relationship with me so that the nations will be blessed by you they say give us a king so we can be like them and the reason that that was so wrong is because they're meant to demonstrate such a beauty of life that the nations come to them and say let us be like you they've flipped it round they've failed again God in his mercy gives them a kingdom a covenant representative one who stands on behalf of the people before God speaks to God for the people to the people for God and uh, of course we see a series of good and sometimes not very good kings Uh, a false start with Saul and then King David is installed and um, unites the kingdom he's given promises by God about his own descendant who will build a house for his name a descendant of King David an anointed one a Christos in the Greek uh, Mashiach, Messiah in the Hebrew who will come after him and who will build a house, a dynasty, and who will rule forever. And David's given those promises. Um, but David's also told, you're not, you're not the one that's going to build this house. And it's actually Solomon, his son, who builds a temple. Uh, a stone representation of what we've seen already in the tabernacle, a dwelling place for God. And we see this high point of Israel's history, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6, this wonderful high point where this temple is completed and Solomon is on his knees dedicating this temple and all the people are rejoicing it's a time of enormous joy Um, and the presence of Yahweh comes and dwells in this temple and the presences the glory is so filling the temple that the priests can't do their job and it's this high point in Israel's history interestingly the part of Solomon's prayer is, and when the people screw up, would you, and you send them into exile, send them into exile, would you forgive them when they pray to you and restore them again? So even at that high point of their history, interesting, God knows exactly what's going to happen, but still has them rejoicing in him at that point. Um, there's also a concern for the nations in that prayer as Solomon dedicates the temple. When the foreigner comes and prays to you, listen to his prayer and welcome him and move faster. It doesn't take long for things to go badly wrong again. Just after Solomon, you then get uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who's a numpty, basically, I think we would probably want to say, because he listens to the advice of his own pals instead of listening to the advice of the elders. Instead of serving the people, and lightening the load of taxes on them, he increases it and he is harsh. And in his harshness uh, of the twelve tribes, ten rebel. And at that point we have a division of the kingdoms. And we've got two kingdoms from that point forward. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah, and with the uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin. I suppose you've had Levites as well. 
and you get the northern kingdom of Israel, the other ten tribes. And those histories go kind of parallel-ish through the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, and it's again mixed reading. There is no king of Israel who is described as a good king who follows God faithfully. There are a few kings of Judah who are described as good kings and who follow God faithfully. And there's multiple prophets appear all the way along, basically sent to either the northern or the southern kingdoms to say, stop, you must stop, because disaster's coming if you don't. That's pretty much a summary of a lot of the prophetic messages. And a lot of the prophecy, and increasingly, as we go on through this cycle of sin and punishment and repentance and prophetic warning, there is an increasing well, through the prophets, there's this increasing sound of the promise of this descendant of David who's going to come and do it right, where all these others have failed so drastically. Uh, as you follow through that history in First and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it's sometimes a little difficult if you've read those books. It's sometimes a wee bit difficult to work out exactly what's going on. Um, once you realise that there's two parallel kingdoms and you're getting the stories sort of mixed through each other and you hear about one king and then another king and then another one from the other kingdom and then another one and you can begin to untangle it a little bit as you're reading through it. There are all kinds of profound lessons in those books as well. But it ends badly in 722 BC with Israel going into exile and being invaded by the Assyrians. Anyone here ever been in the um, British Museum in London. Um, you've seen the friezes on the walls from the Assyrian palaces in Nineveh. So they have these big stone friezes on the walls. And those friezes on the walls show you what the Assyrians did to people when they captured their cities. It's, um, it's horrendous stuff. If the Assyrians were camped around Edinburgh, you would have something fairly serious to worry about. Uh, part of the, the freeze shows them uh, flaying their captives alive. That means pulling their skin off. That's all there in the British Museum. It's all there on stone. Uh, the Assyrian emperors celebrating their power and they, they could do those kinds of things to people. Now, just to say... Sorry, where did the Assyrians go to and do it to you? They did this to the northern kingdom of Israel... But if you read the book of Isaiah, you'll find there's a historical interlude in the middle of Isaiah from chapters 37 to, to 39, 36 to 39 rather. And in those chapters, you have the Assyrians coming to threaten Jerusalem. And given what the Assyrians were like, uh, you can imagine how people would have felt with the Assyrians camping around their city. Um, the Assyrians didn't lose very often, and when they won, it was not really good for the people who they just, whom they just defeated. And the book of Isaiah presents the people in, in Israel, the people of Judah, under Hezekiah as king, facing this opposition from the Assyrians who come to them. It's the fascinating chapters, because in these chapters, you, you hear almost the anatomy of temptation. You know, that the... the the Assyrian comes and says, 
Well, I know who this God is too, and He's told me to come here to to to, to teach you a lesson, essentially. But the lesson that's being taught is, even in the face of the most dreadful fear and the most dreadful opposition, Yahweh alone is the one to be trusted. He alone is in charge of history. He alone is powerful. He alone dictates what happens. And he alone is to be trusted. Therefore, therefore, the message is, don't, don't go for a quick fix. Don't go for something that you think is going to solve this problem quickly. Don't settle for something that you think is going to solve your fear. Because Yahweh alone is the one to be trusted. And that's really the message that's running all the way through this history. Yahweh teaching people his ways. And as we read the history, we see his ways. We see his character. We see his trustworthiness. And we also see the sin and the faithlessness of his people repeatedly through this story. That ultimately results not just in Israel's exile, but also in Judah's exile. Someone can help me with the dates. I think it's 565 BC is the the date for uh, Judah being exiled. Israel's exiled and they're scattered. And they never really return properly. There. That's it. Finished. Judah, however, is exiled to Babylon. And then the Old Testament finishes with the return from exile. Some remarkable events. King Cyrus, who's involved in those events. King Cyrus, even interestingly, described by the prophet Isaiah as the Lord's anointing. It's a remarkable, remarkable statement. But all all these historical events line up to bring the people back from exile in Babylon, to the ruined Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe some of what happens there. The rebuilding of the temple. But it's a kind of, it's a poor rebuild. It's not as good as the original one. And those who remember the original one are not weeping with joy, but weeping with sorrow. The rebuilding of the walls, that's Nehemiah's job. That brings us to the end of the Old Testament. There's a kind of restoration but still waiting for this king still waiting for the one who's going to come along and do it right and that's the expectation with which we start then the New Testament and as we start the New Testament we have the king coming and it's astonishing with all that history behind to then go back and read the gospels I'd really encourage you to do that to go back and read the gospels with that story in mind Thinking about the descendant of David. Thinking about the prophecies of Isaiah. Thinking about all this history. And then you start reading about this Jesus. And the things he does and the things he says take on so much more significance in view of this big picture. So Jesus coming, as we said last week, it's not plan B because plan A didn't work. This is the fulfillment of plan A. It's when Jesus and that redemption accomplished. Not in the way that the people were expecting. They're expecting a great military king like David to come along, defeat the enemies, establish them in their land, and, um, and make them victorious over all the nations around about them. And instead, they get a guy who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then is accused and hung up naked on a cross shamed publicly insults and accusations and 
spit and scorn thrown at him. It doesn't sound like what we think it should sound like. And there's something so shocking about this. And so much of the, the Gospels and then the letters of Paul and Peter and the other letters as well are then explaining how this Jesus is the Christ. Christ not as a last name, by the way. It's not that Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. Okay, Christ is a title, meaning in Greek is Christos, which is just a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, uh, anointed one. And it's indicating the descendant of David. It's a title. Jesus is the Christ, is a claim. It's saying he's the one who's come to fulfill this. He's the one who's come to do everything that all the other kings of Judah and Israel failed to do. He's the one who's come to bring this victory, to bring people to himself, to get this covenant story back on track so that the nations are blessed by also being brought into relationship with the same God. He's the one, and he does it by a cross. And it is an astonishing thing. And it's meant to, it is, it should be shocking. The, the, the difficulty for us is that it becomes so, for many of us at least, it can become so familiar that it loses that, that punch, that offensiveness. But that the descendant of David should voluntarily, willingly go to a cross, not against his will, but actually that was his will, is an astonishing thing. Now, I, I'll, I'm going to pause because I'll get carried away from too much. But Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and then you have the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, that pouring out the Holy Spirit and the empowering of his people to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And you can see then that when Jesus pours out that Spirit on his people after he has been raised from the dead, when he pours out that Spirit, promises it and he pours it out at Pentecost, what you're seeing is the, the dramatic fulfillment of all of this. This is this story coming to this slightly unexpected and, 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 and dramatic climax where, aha, that's how God's going to do it. It's through these people, empowered by His Spirit, His presence in their midst, echoing all the stuff of tabernacle temple in the Old Testament and people with the presence of God in their midst showing the nations who this God is and what he's like by the way that they live in relationship with him. Going and blessing the nations, fulfilling the promise of Abraham in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's where we are now. We're in this church age of the spirit making his dwelling place in the midst of his people. You could describe the people of God now, if you like, as a mobile missional temple. How about that? A mobile dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That comes out of the book of Ephesians, by the way, if you want to go and look at that in more detail. And everywhere these people are, 
living for him, living in relationship with him, and blessing the nations by showing them who God is and what he's like. That's the church age, powered by the Holy Spirit, looking forward to the return of the King, to become Tolkien-esque scholars for a minute or two. But the return of the King, we look forward to the fact that this church age isn't indefinite, that the Bible presents it as having an end point, that finally time will run out, that'll be it, end of that part of the story at least, and Jesus returns, the king returns, this time not as the suffering king who was crucified, but this time as the victorious king, bringing his victory to its final consummation, its final fruition, and the new creation, the restored new creation, where it's a physical new creation where things are as they should be. There's no more death or dying or sorrow or pain where God wipes away all the tears from the eyes. And that beautiful picture of this new creation. It's important to say, more obvious than the other diagram, that the way the New Testament then presents how we now live as God's people in this church age is it presents it as being the inauguration of this new creation. That Jesus in his rising from the dead has inaugurated, started something. He's kicked it into motion. And, and it's started already. It's, it's here already, but, but not yet. Not fully yet. There's still so much to come. And the basis for how we live now is that now those who are in relationship with Jesus and joined to him are joined to this new humanity, this new creation that Jesus has inaugurated. And because we're members of that new humanity and this new creation now, we live a certain way as a result in a relationship with Jesus, a relationship that's brought about by the Spirit. So there's, um, what was that, a 20-minute overview of the whole Bible, and obviously I've missed out lots of big bits there, and there's loads of bits missing, in fact, I think you, you'll probably agree. But it's just to give some signposts and markers, and maybe that'll help you in your own reading of the Bible for yourself, just to see where the bits fit. So that when you go and read the Kings, for example, you can read them and know, right, we're, we're, we're in here somewhere. And I know roughly what's going on, and roughly where we are in the story, and therefore some of the things that go on there make more sense, because I know kind of where I am in the story. When you go and read some of the prophets, one of the questions will be, now wait a minute, is this prophet speaking in here, or is he speaking in the exile, or is he speaking after the exile? Because that's going to make a difference as well, for example. So there you go. Okay? Any comments? Questions? <laughs> Is that a little deluge? Apologize. <laughs> okay. When are we going to start for coffee? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, right, okay. Let us crack on. Well, um, that was the sort of a bit of a download, so um, I'll put this, put this quote up here because I think it's very cool.
Dallas Willard, some of you might know his name, um, died a couple of years ago. Um, and this relates to that biblical big picture, creation to new creation. And Willard said this, uh, he, was a, he was a very godly man, he particularly wrote about, well he's actually a philosopher, he wrote a lot about spiritual disciplines and about disciples. He said a fundamental mistake of the conservative side of the church today is it takes its basic role to get as many people as possible when he's dying or down. And he's not diminishing the importance of being ready to die and knowing what your destination is, having some sort of assurance. He's not saying that's not important, just to be clear. It aims to get people down rather than to get out of it. And if you look at that picture that we've outlined there, and say, and which shows that we're actually members of this new creation, this new humanity, now. And that's the basis of how we live. Knowing that big picture makes a difference to how we think about how we live. Now, on that theme, I'd love us just to tend to spend a little bit more time thinking about creation. Um, so I, I, I like that photo, I don't feel like that was taken from the ferry between Tarbert and uh, on Isle of Harris and uh, that's as much sun as we got that summer um, on Isle of Harris anyway now um, I'll, I'll go through some of this quite quickly because we've, we've covered some of it already I want to focus a little bit more in on it just to help us to think through some of the implications because one of the problems with the way we talk about the <coughs> Jesus is that that whole biblical story, you start trying to tell the good news about Jesus by starting to hear something, so you start to hear that story. And it makes a difference. It's a difference to how we then think about it. Genesis 1 to 3, that account of origins, how it happened, when, that, that God did it, that it's his stuff, uh, that it's accountable to him, that he created it good, and that something's gone wrong. These things give us a framework for actually evaluating the whole of life and culture. For asking questions about what's right and wrong, good and bad. What is God's created design and what isn't? And how do we know? How do we then evaluate many of the contemporary challenges that we have morally in our society? Ethical challenges, end of life challenges, beginning of life challenges, identity Gender, sexuality challenges. How do we evaluate those kinds of things? It's very difficult to evaluate those kinds of things unless we have some sense of how it's meant to be. And does God tell us that? Well, yes, He does tell us um, how it's meant to be. So I did those slides a little while back. Now, my wife gives me a lot for putting fancy, tra- fancy transitions on because she says they're really distracting. Um, is that distracting? Anyway, uh, at the peak, the pinnacle, the high point, rhetorically, the literary high point of Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of man. And man is seen then as being the pinnacle of creation. And it's at that point that God says it's exceedingly good. Up to that point, he said it's, this is, it is good. God saw what he made and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then he creates man and says it's exceedingly good. It's exceedingly, really excellent. And when I say authorial intent, the the purpose of that narrative is not to give us a detailed taxonomy. 
of the animals or the fish or to give us an astronomy textbook. It's to tell us that God did it, that he created it, and he created it out of nothing. And he created it good, and it's his stuff, it belongs to him, and it's accountable to him. That's the, the thrust of it. And in every culture, in every age, that's offensive. Because it's saying to everything that's made, you didn't make yourself. You don't own yourself. God did it, and he made you. We're described in Genesis 1, 29 man is described as being the image and likeness of God. The only thing in creation that's made in God's image. Um, and, and, and the idea of image and likeness, I'll, just, I'll read you a quote here um, that uh, may help, just in trying to see what does that mean. So Derek Kidner, who was an Old Testament commentator, he said this, he said, Man is an expression or transcription of the eternal incorporeal creator, and the, the creator doesn't have a body, in terms of temporal bodily creaturely existence. Someone else said, you could paraphrase it, let us make man to be our concrete resemblance to be like us. So somewhere you can you read one Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, man is an expression of, or transcription of the eternal incorporeal creator in terms of temporal, bodily, and creaturely existence. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot to be unpacked there, but i just give you that almost in passing. But it does mean the image stuff is important later because in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the image of God. And we are described as being restored in the image of Jesus. So that's why I'm making a bit of a deal about the image stuff here. The other thing that's said in those verses where God creates man is that he gives man a job to do in creation. What some call the cultural mandate, to look after it, to have dominion over it. Not domination, but dominion, to, to uh, rule over it well to exercise on God's behalf his good rule and authority over the whole of his creation. Um, and it's interesting, I'll just, I'll, I'll, again, Andy, I'll try and get these slides and show it to people as, as you wish, but that's just Psalm 8 on the left there. What is man that you're mindful of? The son of man you care for. You made a little lower than heavenly beings, kind of glory on you, given a dominion of the works of your hands, put all things under his feet. And it's fascinating that that's exactly that psalm which clearly echoes what we've just focused in Genesis 1. Picked up on the right hand side there in Hebrews chapter 2. What's man be mindful of and so on. And then in italics there, just to highlight it. And putting everything in subjection. To man, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection. In other words, you'll see it that way right now because of the fall, because of everything that's gone wrong. But we do see him, that is Jesus. A little while made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death is one. And this passage in Hebrews 2 is just fascinating because in Jesus you're seeing the the beginnings of that restoration of that very dominion that has been marred and broken 
that dominion has become domination. Interestingly, I had an interview by Skype yesterday with an anthropology master's student here in Edinburgh who's been sitting in the classes I've been teaching at uh, ETS, what we do at the Church College. So this guy's from Peru and he's been sitting in this, this, this class. And then he wanted to interview me, but particularly because he wanted to know what the church believed about uh, the environment and the environmental issues. And so I went back to Genesis and I said, actually, Christians with this understanding of creation, what the Bible actually says about it and about the fact that we're given a job to do in it and that we've done it very badly and that part of what Christ is doing is restoring not just relationship with God, relationship with other human beings, but also relationship with the creation. And that therefore we as Christians should actually be, should actually be more concerned about this than anybody else. We should be at the forefront of it, caring about the good stuff that our God made. Um, so it's interesting, interesting to be very challenging, I, I find, as I was thinking about the implications of the concept. Just to pop to the back end, to, to, the, to the, the end of the story as well, just to read these verses so that they're in our heads before we have coffee. At the end, we see this restoration. The holy city, verse 2, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that's a biblical theme that we've seen all the way through. If he will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He was seated in the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And then this intriguing verse later on in the same chapter. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this new creation. It's an amazing idea that the kings of the earth bring into this new creation their glory. Something of what was good. Something of what fulfilled God's command in Genesis 1 where he said go and subdue and rule over it well and do things with the stuff that I've made. And here... Does it mean in kings as in the act of kings or does it mean in those that are It just, it just says, Lindsay, the kings of the earth. I think that the implication of it is just that those who represent all of the nations at that point, that there are those who are representing those nations, bringing the glory, if you like, of those nations. The stuff that was done that was good. There's this mystery of in what sense will this new creation be in continuity with now? I think we can say there will be some continuity clearly, but exactly what that will look like, I don't think we can quite say, we're speculating. But one of the things that means, of course, is that what we do now matters. It has eternal significance. And that's one of the reasons I just want to put that up there. Creation is made good in the beginning. God doesn't make junk, He doesn't junk what He's made. New creation, kings of the earth bringing their glory, all the glory of history into this new creation. It's quite a thought. It dignifies and ennobles all of human endeavor and makes the sin 
that mars all that human endeavor so much more tragic when we think about that sweep of history so creation new creation um, we will just lean up to the copyright we'll just have a, a, a wee bit of fun just really quickly if that's okay creation is good physicality is good creatureliness is good physicality may not feel quite so good as you get older <laughs> but um, yeah I am um, recently realised I've passed on one particular disease to one of my sons and another to another. But neither of them are both, so I suppose that's okay. But you know, physical existence is not, is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And we look forward to being restored. And the gospel's bigger than you thought. And all these things follow from this account of creation. Man's dignity. Man's purpose in the world. Having a unique place task, relationship. And there's no real divide between the so-called sacred and the so-called secular. We'll finish this part just with a little bit of video and then after the break we're going to do an exercise together. This will be perhaps familiar to many of you. Oh, we need volume, we need uh, sound. Filmed about what, a mile from here? Anyone guess? what the film clip is. We're thinking about being made for a purpose and God giving us things to do in the world. I'm trying to some clues here. We probably have the judges kind spotting. As I say, I'm not back in China. The mission starts are But that very famous statement, um, God made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure. And really what I'd like us to do after the break is to ask exactly the same question. In view of this idea of creation, if God created you, me, us, then, or God made me and when I, I feel his pleasure. Once asked my friend Everett this one, we were talking about this question. He said he thought about it for a second. He said, "He said God made me pedantic, and when I'm critical, I feel His pleasure." <laughs> <laughs> and with that, let's have a cup of tea and we'll have a short break, and we'll come back and we'll, we'll just round our tables discuss this question. It's a really important one for us to grapple with.